listeners, I am so glad. Thank you for all for joining us today uh, for this bonus behind the scenes episode while we are on Dracula off season. I am so glad to be joined today by, I will say, the more senior director of Regarding Dracula, Ella Watt. Ella, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Hello. Um, we're not going to tell you whether that means that it's because I'm older um, as a director. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You've done more things, that's all. <laughs> because I'm older. No. Um... <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I am the directing vampire who sired you as a director. <laughs> <laughs> as is traditional. Uh, uh, you have roughly one million credits. Um, the the things that I know you best from are things like what I like to think of as the British contingent of uh, the good shows. So you're involved with things like We Fix Space Junk and The Orphans and uh, that kind of group of folks. Um, but you also do things for, you've done work for the BBC. You have done work for, is it Marvel? Yeah, yeah. So I, oh my gosh, uh, in a brief, brief summary, uh, I've, I've written and directed for The Orphans. Uh, I've done mm-hmm. voice acting for We Fix Space Junk. Uh, I was a runner on season three of Wooden Overcoats and wrote one of their bonus episodes, one of the fun fragments. I directed and created Doctor Who Redacted, which was like a Doctor Who spin-off series with Jodie Whittaker. And right now I am a director for Marvel Moves. So that's a bunch of adaptations, like audio drama adaptations of Marvel comics, including like the X-Men, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, and Scarlet Witch and another one that I can't remember right now I think those are the main <laughs> ones um uh yeah um and then I've also done like little bits and pieces um for other shows I, again I've done bits of voice acting um in like Seren uh, and Breathing Space and I uh, wrote and directed an episode of Monkey Tales uh for uh Deej Silvis at Moonbase Theatre Out um, which is like a little hope punk story. Um, I also, in terms of like gothic literature, directed an audiobook of The Woman in Black, which was voiced by uh, Papa Esedu, uh for Audible last year. And to be honest, that was so cool. He's just such a great actor, but also it was really fun because we got to mess around with this um, binaural microphone. And for people who don't know, like, when you use a binaural microphone, it's basically inside a dummy head and you interact with the dummy head as if it's a real person and you can actually like scratch the back of its head and when you listen to it, you hear someone scratching the back of your head and stuff. And so that meant like directing wise with Papa, it was weird because it was somewhere between audio directing and theater directing because I had him in the room with this dummy and I'm being like, okay, so I want you to like, you know, come closer to it. And like he was interacting with it as if he was interacting with like a physical listener in the room. Um, wow. And that was really cool for a horror um thing especially because like I didn't realize this until I was reading The Woman in Black again for directing this because I I love the play I love the book but I hadn't noticed the first time I read the book how sonic the book is like the book talks so much about sound so much of the haunting is specifically about sound in a really interesting way um and uh yeah I also had the kind of classic thing with the woman in black which is it's one of my favorite things that happens in directing it definitely happened a few times when we were doing dracula which is that sometimes i find when i direct something it makes me understand the text in a way that i hadn't understood it before even if i've read it more than once um and uh i really had that with women in black where like 
we got to the ending and I realized as I was directing the ending that like, whew, there is a thing implied about the ending of The Woman in Black that, that makes it so much sadder and scarier. And I didn't realize that that was the implication and no one else in the room had realized, including Papa. And then I was talking to him about it and I was like, look, the way you said that sentence sounded weird, like in context, like that doesn't make sense. I think that this is what that means. And he was like, no. And I was like, I know. Um, <laughs> so, uh yeah, I love I love it when when those things happen. So like uh heads up for, you know, this is a horror novel um heads up for implication of suicide. When the writer of the woman in black gets to the end like, you know, the whole premise is that he's telling the story because he's determined to get it off his chest, but when you tell the story, it kind of spreads to other people. Um and he has this phrase at the end of the book where he says, you know, now it's done. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he's like, I'm, I'm going to go outside and I will leave this for you to find. And he's addressing this in a letter to his wife. The implication being that he won't be there for her to find it. And then like basically across the next couple of paragraphs, it becomes clear that as soon as you get to the end of the book, the last sentence right after that sentence is when he kills himself because oh now he's gosh. recounted the story and that's what he's planning. And it's kind of implied a few paragraphs up and it's not said explicitly, but you find that if you read it aloud, if you read it aloud in a kind of normal tone of voice, the the grammatical structure, the syntax sounds weird. But if you apply that tone to it, suddenly it all makes sense. And it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is... Um, yeah, so I never realized that that happened at the end of that book, but turns out, yeah, like you you you, got, you almost don't want to get to the end because you know that when he stops writing, he, he'll be done. Um, that is absolutely chilling, my yeah. word. No, I know. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I, I want to like dissect how you got into directing. What is the first thing you ever directed? I, you know what? I, I think about this a lot, actually, because uh, I love directing and people ask me this <laughs> question quite a lot. Um, honestly, the first thing I can remember directing was that when I was like 14, I convinced my English teacher to let me program an evening of monologues performed by oh, other right. students um, that I would direct uh, because I was just an extremely precocious teenager. Um, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, and um, I don't even remember like why they allowed me to do this. We didn't really have like a theater club or anything at my school. I just really liked drama. And so I think I got some of the other students who were doing like uh, speech and drama, like basically acting classes, like um, after school um, to, to pick a monologue. And then I directed each of them. And then I performed my own monologue that I wrote and directed myself doing. And then <laughs> I had like the kind of, you know, few indulgent parents who attended to support their individual children and then politely had to go see the rest, um, like walk <laughs> through the school and like go into like different classrooms and stuff. And like different kind of monologues would trigger as you went into different rooms. Um, oh man, what a cool directing <laughs> choice though. <laughs> Good job, 14-year-old Ella. <laughs> yeah, like, so that's, that's, I remember that being the first piece of directing I did. And I actually remember that when I went to university, I got a role as assistant director on Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe, which is, I love that play. And um, my old English teacher, like, sent a bottle of champagne to my college um, saying, like, that, you know, he hoped it went, he was sure it would go well, um, like, after, like, you know, all this time that I'd spent kind of bugging him about directing and stuff. Oh. Um, yeah, which was really sweet. Um, so, yes, I, I believe that that was the first thing I directed. I, I was definitely a child who would yell at people to do stuff, but that was, like, <laughs> the first actual directing directing that I did. That is wonderful. So you got your start in theatre. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I... 
a thousand percent like theater is uh, what has informed like pretty much everything that i think about uh, like acting in any format and i think that there is a much stronger connection between theater and audio in the uk um than there is in the us um That's for sure. so like even these days like a lot of stuff that gets broadcast on radio for adaptations of plays yeah, uh yeah. and like uh, stage shows um Whereas obviously, like, it's not until recently that the US has had, like, as much of a tradition as audio drama. You Well, you guys had a break. US radio drama existed up until the 1960s to the 1990s, depending on who you ask. I mean, US radio <laughs> drama continued to exist, but it wasn't as popular after the 1960s, which means that a lot of people who are growing up in the US today might not be as familiar with radio drama as people who grew up in the UK. <laughs> I'm not going to go on to that whole tangent. That sounds like you're really well informed on this topic. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I think Hannah knows me better from like my job as like an audio fiction expert like and like only recently <laughs> as a director true. so it's like normally I write like articles and stuff about like the history of radio drama and audio drama which I find fascinating but I'm I'm here at my capacity as a director yeah <laughs> So uh, how did you get into audio specifically then? I, oh man, I just love radio. Um, enough people told me that if talking was an Olympic sport, then I would have a gold medal that I took it seriously <laughs> and tried to find a way to make that a career. Um, no, uh, I mean, kind of true. Uh, I moved around a lot growing up and um, we, like I lived in Australia and Hong Kong and we'd always listen to BBC radio, like actually just talk radio and music radio um as a way to like kind of connect to home and like where my family was and stuff like it was the way to yeah. hear the accents of my like grandpa and things and so I always really loved radio uh and then in terms of audio drama I mean my brother was obsessed with audiobooks um partly because he's dyslexic and he found it a lot easier to read books by listening to them than uh by like reading them on the page um and my brother and I were very close so like we shared a room growing up and so if he was listening to audiobooks on repeat then I was listening to audiobooks on repeat <laughs> but then just before I went to university I met this Swedish woman who's one of my closest friends who had been listening to Cabin Pressure um by John Finnamore and she was like have you heard of this because my dad was a pilot and also I was British and I was like no and I started listening to it and it was amazing and then from there I was like oh well I need to know more about audio drama but this was like still pretty early days this was like 2012 so I think mm -hmm. I listened to Our Fersacy and The Thrilling Adventure Hour and The Leviathan Chronicles and then Night Vale got big on Tumblr and then I got into Night Vale <laughs> and you know the, the rest as they say is history um <laughs> that's wonderful okay so I'm curious about what kind of skills translate from theater to audio and what skills don't? Mm, oh my gosh. Uh, I have many opinions about this, actually. Uh, so I, I think that the big thing that works really well from theater to audio is physicality. I think that often with film and TV, and I will emphasize, I am not a film or TV director, so I apologize to any <laughs> film or TV directors I might be offending with these assertions. Um, but... To my crude understanding, um, often in film and TV, your acting has to be like pretty small and extremely focused, especially around like your face and like small body language and stuff like that. 
Um, partly because, you know, you are part of a choreography of something that is like very, very thought through, but also because like a camera is much closer to you than an audience member is in a theatre would be usually. Um, but what that means is that with theatre, you get used to like using your body in quite big and expressive ways. And you also have to think a lot about your voice. It's the whole thing of projecting to the back of the room. You have to be able to understand how to project your voice backwards and forwards, which again is a bit less relevant in film and TV, where you're going to have a boom mic pretty close to you and you're not thinking quite as much about your vocal performance as you are about like your, what I guess I would refer to as your visual performance, which is the collection of your face and body language. Right. But in audio, the way that you physically move your body massively affects how you sound. So for example, if I scrunch myself up and then start trying to talk, then you could kind of tell that I'm scrunched up. Whereas <laughs> if I kind of sit up straight or even if I stood and I wanted to really start telling you that I was like outside right now and actually I'm talking over traffic and I want you to understand that there is a bigger space that I'm in, then I can do that quite easily with my voice if I understand how to use my voice and use my body and move around. It's a big part of why a lot of actors prefer to stand up whilst recording because it means that their diaphragm can move properly. If people sing, then they'll know that as well. And it means that they can like choose to use kind of all of the physical apparatus they have to hand. Um, there's something that like, uh, actors who aren't used to audio need to learn when they're doing audio, which is that even though I can't see your body, I can hear the way you move your body. What I can't hear often is the way you move your face. I can hear like a smile um, and you can hear a little bit, you can hear kind of hear a scowl, but beyond that, like those kind of tiny micro expressions that people really school for TV, you just can't hear at all. Um, and so I've worked with screen actors who are amazing, but they just really struggle to translate that emotional inflection to their voice because they're so used to focusing on their face. Whereas uh, theatre actors tend to find it a lot easier because um, sometimes, you know, again, that thing of like the person in the back of the theatre, right? Um, you need to be projecting and having enough control of your voice that they can hear the emotion of your voice like 300 or like, I don't know, 100 feet away. Um, and maybe they can see that you have physically moved across the stage, but they might not see whether or not you've curled your fingers into a fist or not. Like, because they're far enough away, they can't hear that. And so they have to hear in your voice where you go from like sorrow to anger or where you go from like love to despair. Um, and so I find like actors like Papa Isedu, he's classically trained. He, like he's a stage actor first, is very, 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 good in audio and uh i find that really interesting but yeah i think i think the main thing is like in terms of what works well is is the physicality obviously the other side of that is that the thing that can work badly is the physicality um <laughs> if people focus too much in theater like um there's lots of clowning for example that doesn't really use voice at all like it's completely silent um if people are accustomed to not using their voice as much or they're accustomed to relying on their body more than sometimes they I, I to be honest like it's silly but one of the big ones is they'll whack their microphone because they'll be moving around and jumping around the room and they'll just like swing their <laughs> arm out and like knock it it's sort of just getting them used to that um and also getting them used to interacting with the microphone because again like um in a lot of ways you want an actor to interact with the microphone as if it is another actor um because you know, if I'm suddenly like here, that feels really intimate. Whereas if I'm like over here, that doesn't feel that intimate. Um, and like interacting with that as if it's a person, because the person listening like does feel like you're right next to them, um, is a really important thing to understand about how to voice act for 
audio, uh, well, voice actor for audio, act for audio, voice act. But sometimes some theatre actors who might not be accustomed to having a microphone in front of them are used to kind of performing to a group of people. And so we'll kind of like span to that room rather than just going in for like the one target, that one person. And so it's also getting their heads around like one person, don't whack the microphone. Moving your body does affect things, but some things like moving your hands and arms won't affect it. If it makes you feel better, great, but like it's not going to do anything for what I can hear in the performance. Crushing your torso, crouching down, uh, physically wiggling your shoulders, that'll do something. I'm sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> that was perfect. That was everything I needed to know. <laughs> I, I've actually never thought about like the intimacy of a monologue on a stage versus the intimacy of a monologue to a mic. Like that is a that is a wild difference. Yeah, yeah. No, it really is. Like, it's it's one of my favorite things. I remember um, talking to, so I did a master's degree in radio and I remember talking to my radio drama teacher about this and saying, like, there's a bit in the Bright Sessions, which I really love, um, at the end of season one where... Um, the only way, it's the first time Joan loses her composure. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar with the Bright Sessions, I can't imagine you wouldn't be, but just in case, uh, it's basically <laughs> therapy for superheroes. And the therapist, Dr. Bright, the whole way through season one, very much maintains the kayfabe of like, she, she's a therapist, so she's neutral. You don't really see her emotions. She's played brilliantly by Julia Marazawa. Um, and uh, then in season... So yeah, no, seriously. But then you get to the end of season one and something happens. One of her clients says something. And the only way that you know that Dr. Bright is feeling stressed is that her breath catches. Like she, her breath goes from being even to being uneven. Um, and, and breath in audio drama is kind of cliched, but it's cliched for a reason, because the thing is, the reason that's so interesting is it's not like she's like panting into the microphone. It's a really small sound. The only way you could hear that sound, like you couldn't hear that sound if you were standing or sitting in a theater and there was an actor on stage, you'd be too far away, you couldn't hear it. If you heard it in a TV show or a film, it would be a weird creative choice for them to have amplified the sound of breathing so loudly over like the score and the foley that you could hear it. The only way that you could hear that sound is if you were standing like literally shoulders touching next to her. And that's what we talk about when we talk about, again, somewhat overused cliche, but like the intimacy of audio is that like, you are so physically close. Audio happens inside your body. Like physically, sound vibrates inside your skull. Even light bounces off your eyes. Like also when you're listening to something, you're not constantly interacting with a fourth wall. Like if you're looking at a stage, you're seeing a stage, you know it's not real. If you're watching TV or a film, you're looking at a screen, you know it's not real. If you're reading a book, you're holding a book, you know it's not real. But if you're like playing some audio like in your kitchen whilst you're doing the ditch dishes, you're not constantly reminding yourself it's not real and it's happening physically inside your head and that makes it feel very very close to you um it's also why uh, the bbc historically when they talk about even like again like talk radio they talk about uh talking to the listener single rather than listeners plural because they say like what it feels like is that i am just talking to you the one person listening to this not as if i am talking to a big crowd um, and yeah, like you say, that that has dramatic implications for how you direct and like how people receive it. Like you can go in a way more kind of Brechtian direction and be like big and over loud. And that's what shows like Gay Future do. And they're doing it on purpose. They're being like very loud and in your face and hypersaturated and kind of forcing you not to be able to suspend your disbelief by being like so farcical and over the top. And that's a really interesting creative decision. But it is something you have to work quite hard to do in audio. Um, you have to go quite far into the absurd before like people stop taking you seriously. Like even something like Star Tripper, for example, is like a beautiful <laughs> show and it's very ridiculous, but you always think that Festin Pixis is a person.
person. You don't mm-hmm. think that Fess and Pixis is like some random, like squishable character and you wouldn't mind if he got like eviscerated. Like you, he's a person like who you know, but that's a very silly show, but that's how far you can go without losing your audience's suspense of disbelief because they are so close to you. You are so close to Festin. You are on his ship with him. So you have to believe him. You have to believe everything he's telling you. Um, And yeah, I I find that distinction really interesting. That is fascinating. But when you approach a text, like, for example, with regarding Dracula, where we have a a really well-established text that I'm sure you had read before, um, like... What is the approach that you, when you're, when you're looking for things to direct, like you have a script in front of you, what do you look for? Yes. Oh, I, this, this is actually, I'm really glad you asked. Cause I had a lot of opinions about this with Dracula. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think that one of the really interesting things with Dracula is Dracula is a great book. Um, it's a really fun book to read. Um, I love the novel Dracula. Dracula is not the only like pre 19th century novel I've read, like, um, or well, I guess pre 20th century novel I've read. Um, uh, I specialize in medieval literature. Um, and, and one of the things that that means is that I'm very accustomed to reading texts that don't reflect our modern sensibilities. And I'm used For sure. to, right? Like, and I'm used to suspending my disbelief on that. That's fine. But when directing, um, there were two big things that came up a lot. Like one was from a performance perspective. So Dracula has this like very florid, very, very gothic, like prose style, like characters make a lot of exclamations. There are a lot of like big sweeping emphatic statements. Um, the problem with that is that for a modern audience, specifically, I guess an English and American audience was the one that I was like primarily thinking of. Cause those are the cultures I know best those big over-the-top statements don't make us think that they are more sincere. Um, actually, if anything, we tend to think that they're less sincere. We see them as like performative. We see them as like overblown. And that's partly actually, in my opinion, uh, not to be all tinfoil hat, but because of the influence of things like TV and film, um, TV and film drama, which like right now the trend in, in terms of dramatic style is very much for like small, sincere, like really bone deep kind of performances, like things that like cut deep and feel real. We're very obsessed with things that feel real right now, especially because of social media. Um, And again, I think social media has an impact on this, that like we are very, very sensitive to people kind of saying like, this just like means like so much to me. Because if someone does that, you don't believe that they actually mean that because we've seen enough YouTube apology videos. Um, Whereas (laughs) if someone kind of gets a little bit kind of nervous and quiet and says, "Um, look, I was just, I really wanted to... um, share this with you um then you believe them because that is like runs counter to what we expect in socials uh but it also runs in line with what we expect from good television and good film and award-winning things and so like it fits the narrative that this is a sincere emotion and so the first thing to tackle with Dracula was that like um and I spoke about this with you Hannah and Stephen and Tal at the start was we wanted people to actually feel emotions in response to Dracula. I wanted people to be sincerely engaged with the novel and sincerely feel the emotional twists and turns of the novel. But in order for that to happen, they had to sincerely believe the emotions of the characters, which meant that they had to sincerely believe the expression of emotion of those characters, even when those when the emotion of those characters are being like, I wish I were not a woman and stuff like that. And so it's finding ways to justify like emotionally, realistically and narratively with the text. Like, how can we perform 
almost a different sentence to the sentence that's written or how can we like express like the core emotion of this sentence but not necessarily reflect exactly like the punctuation um so sometimes that might be like instead of a ex exclaiming like making this gothic exclamation sincerely and loudly it might be like can you do this bitterly can you do it sarcastically can you say something really big but in a really small way that and then from that contradiction we get the emotion um and i found that really interesting to work on especially with um Ben Galpin um, as as Jonathan, because there were a few moments where we kind of had that, where like Jonathan could be really big and sometimes he is really big, but um, also sometimes the moments where Jonathan like loses the fight and loses the strength, I think are some of the biggest moments of pathos because you're suddenly like, oh no. And again, as a modern audience, we feel that even if in the original text, it probably was more intended that he keeps up that consistent volume and, and intensity of emotion the whole way through because it's a very Gothic novel. It also comes to mind to me for for um, for Alan's performance as Van Helsing yeah. because I mean you could unkindly interpret Van Helsing as a blowhard. He says many many words. Um, most of them are nonsense. Um, but like what comes to mind with that is the uh, trying to convince Seward that there is vampires that are real and. Uh, trying to convince him that the child was, uh, the child who was in the newspaper was attacked by a vampire saying, you know, are you saying that some creature, you know, the same creature who hit Lucy is hit this child as well. And he's saying, no, what I'm saying is the child was a victim of Miss Lucy and Alan's like grief in there mm. hits so much harder than a declaration. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, yeah, you're right. Cause like Alan, is another really, was another really fun person to work with on this because like, I felt like, I, I don't know about you, but like a lot of the sessions that I had with Alan, like it was talking about, and I guess this actually kind of leads into the, the second big thing that I would consider when preparing a text like this is, well, I guess this is the bridge. This is like point one A, <laughs> um, uh, but is obviously you need to think about a character's like um, interiority, like their inner life and like what's happened before and what the context and implications the subtext are of the text. And so with Van Helsing, like that's really interesting because like most of Van Helsing's story happens before Dracula. And most yeah. of what he's saying is like overshadowed with everything that's already happened to him. And so a lot of like directing Alan was being like, okay, you are saying this and you are feeling haunted. You are feeling sad. You are feeling guilty. You have failed people before. You've seen this happen before. Like you're resigned. You are resentful. You feel hatred, not in this moment because this thing has just happened now, but because it's happened over over and over and over again. And because you keep failing, you feel insecure and you are covering for that. You are being firm because you have warned people before and it didn't work. And you're trying to warn these people this time, but you still don't think they'll listen to you. And you kind of know that's going to happen. Um, and like all of those like layers of like gray and shadow that Van Helsing has, where like you say, like if you take him straightforwardly as he is in the novel, where he just kind of comes in and is like, you know, I'm an authority, blah. Um, like it's fine. But again, for a modern audience, that's not that compelling. Whereas if you take him as someone who is, you know, he's an old monster hunter. And the thing about an old monster hunter is survivor's guilt. And also how many times have you failed? Um, mm -hmm. And like, and, and the fact that like, 
this win is such a big win suggests that this is the only win. And so like, how many times have you lost? Um, and then if you've lost that many times, how many young men have you seen die? How many young women, how many people have you seen sort of eat each other? How many uh, people didn't listen to your warnings? How many times have you tried and failed to convince people because they thought that you were detached from reality? And so adding all of that into Van Helsing's character like made him for, certainly for me so much more interesting um, and also really fun to direct because like then finding those corners of like guilt and shadow um, uh, made it really fun and I guess so that leads into the other thing which is I personally find this like less interesting from an emotional perspective but uh, crucial from a professional perspective which is like modernizing a text which is to say without changing the actual words, how can we uh, read modern sensibilities and feelings and readings into a text? Um, this is not the only adaptation of Dracula. Um, and whilst I love it, it may not even be the best adaptation of Dracula. Um, <laughs> so our responsibility is not necessarily to do the most true to the text like adaptation that there's ever been, because those exist. Um, right. But one opportunity for us was to create one that you know interrogates things like the queerness of Dracula and another thing is to like look at characters like Mina and give her like the agency and power that is often left out when people do like tv and film adaptations um of the story and so one thing there was like something that I worked with Isabel quite a lot on was um again like kind of a little bit of self-awareness in her performance that when Mina says like oh you know because I am a woman like maybe this thing has happened or whatever that Mina rather than sincerely just being a silly stupid woman who thinks that maybe her instinct and body is automatically making things happen um that instead she's sort of speculating it on it as a very intelligent woman who understands her cultural context and she's kind of being like maybe like so one thing that I remember we talked about was when the suitors are grieving and um Mina's comforting them but then she takes a minute to herself outside um so like Arthur specifically like um uh has this conversation with Mina and kind of like lies his head in her lap and Mina's a bit overwhelmed about that because it's like quite forward um Ooh. but she's also sort of reassuring herself that this is this is okay and this is allowed but you know she's within a context so that's very forward and then uh she leaves the room and that's when she lets herself kind of feel upset. And it was fun with Isabel working on that because, you know, there's a version of that where the whole way through that scene, both of them are like at a hundred percent emotion. But the problem is that, um, you get tired. Like, um, you know, the, 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 the premise of catharsis is a very old one. Um, but generally speaking, we can't feel any emotion consistently. It's, it's when we talk about like, uh, the, like spectacle creep, like we talk about like the people can't be as scared as they possibly are for 95 minutes. Like you have to give people breaks and islands. And the same is true of grief. Like the problem is that you can't have 45 minutes of feeling the saddest you've ever felt because you actually just can't maintain that for that long. Eventually your brain gets bored um and so you have to have moments where you like pick up and there's levity or there's curiosity there's a slight change in emotion and in that scene there aren't like big changes in emotion but Mina is like the island that you're on because she's being the strong like fairly steady one and, and Arthur's falling apart and then it's only like after Arthur is no longer a factor that then you see Mina being upset and that means that you can feel both of their grief you can feel with both of them in the way that they feel differently and I also do think that the way Mina's written is as a someone who she tries very hard to be the rock for other people um but she doesn't let other people see when she's upset about things yeah that was just like one of the ways in which I found it really interesting to work with her as a character 
Um, this is this has gone on a cul-de-sac. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Isabel's brilliant to work with anyway. Yes. I mean, oh my gosh, all these actors just absolutely slam dunk. Mm-hmm. When you are directing something, does it feel like falling into a, a rhythm for you? Does it feel like a, a place where your brain feels at home or is it more like a discovery process? Like, are you learning things every time you direct something? I would say a bit of both. For me, directing is a little bit like music. It's like listening to an orchestra. So if I hear a read of a scene, sometimes I'll hear a line, I described this for a friend of mine as like sounding sour. It almost sounds off key. Like you can just tell that it doesn't feel natural or real. And sometimes the reason for that is obvious and you can kind of look at the context and look at the text and and figure it out. And sometimes it's less obvious, you need to untangle it. And I like to work with actors to try and like see what they think as well. But yeah, like for me, it's like it's like if you know a song really well and you know what all the instruments are supposed to be doing and you're listening to see what the instruments do. But and I guess this is where the metaphor falls apart a bit. Imagine that orchestra has elements or the piece of music has elements of improvisation, like sections where you improvise, Um, I guess like jazz. (laughs) We've moved to jazz. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, Um, uh, but, you know. What I love when directing is finding moments where the actors can add something or change something or change something about the way they understand understood a text. And what I also love is finding moments where I can offer something to them because obviously your actors will turn up having prepared the text. They will turn up having looked at it and thought about it and thought about what they're doing. Um, and I like kind of making suggestions and discussing with them like what they think their characters are doing. So like, actually I was just thinking that um, another good example of this is Felix Trench's Renfield. Like I had so many feelings about making Renfield a convincing person, like a real person who you actually felt for. Um, And for me, that came in a lot with that conversation that he has with Mina and also with his death. Um, And I remember having this big conversation with Felix about like the death and being like, I actually have like quite a lot of thoughts about like that last scream that we hear, the last like line that we hear from Renfield. Because he... I think like with Felix Kaminik, he kind of expected because that is what the text says that this is just sort of, you know, it's, it, it does what it says on the tin. But actually when you think about like everything that leads up to this moment, there's like such enormous like redemptive pathos in Renfield's exit from the novel. And so much of it comes into the fact that like, this is the moment, like this is the one moment where Renfield really actually tries to to put himself in the way to protect someone else, knowing that he'll fail. Like, Renfield is very clever. In a lot of ways, he's smarter than Seward. And we know that he's clever, and we know that he understands the situation from the way that he talks to Mina, and we know that he's mercurial. We also know that he appreciates Mina because Mina talks to him like a person, and as soon as she does, he talks to her like a person. And he makes this one rash, irrational decision for once. Instead of, like, planning and calculating to look after himself, he on purpose throws himself in the way of the gun. And he does it because he wants to protect Mina. And he fails, and he fails so catastrophically. And he realizes in his dying breaths how completely ineffective and impotent he is, and how that sacrifice is completely meaningless, and how she's still gonna get hurt. And so the last things he does is this moment of courage, and then this abject, like the despair of failure. And that's how he dies, knowing that she's going to be hurt, knowing that the one person like who showed him kindness or respect in recent years, like 
is going to die because he wasn't enough, because he wasn't smart enough, because this one time that he was irrational, it didn't work. And like, knowing that we could put that much into like just these like couple lines made it just a much more interesting scene to perform and to record um but also it, it like it makes me engage with the text in much more deeply and and it makes me much more interested in it um the other like big moment for me like that was actually the right towards the ending of the novel when um Quincy dies I love Quincy I think John Carlo Herrera is an incredible actor I love directing him um one thing that kind of became clearer and clearer to me over the course of directing Re Dracula, uh, or directing regarding Dracula in a way that I hadn't, I don't think I'd as consciously clocked this before. Uh, the last time I read Dracula was I was like a lot younger, um, mm -hmm. but was realizing how much of the novel, especially around Mina, um, is is a pretty strong parallel for sexual assault and and for the ways that people think about sexual assault. And so that was something that we talked about a lot. In, in in the chapter where Dracula like attacks Mina and where everyone reacts to the attack of Mina. And it's specifically this thing about Mina and, and the mark and her being stained and marked by this. Mm. And so much of that, like we realized across the course, like uh, and when I say we, I, mean, I guess I mean the suitors Van Helsing and Mina. And, and we realized like as, as we were recording those chapters was, you know, so much of it is Mina's discomfort with the fact that people can see this on her, like that she feels like it's, obvious to everyone and so much of like Jonathan's loyalty like the the fantasy metaphor and it's an excellent fantasy metaphor is that Jonathan would fully go vampire for Mina because he just loves her that much <laughs> but the real life story I also think is so beautiful which is that Jonathan is emphasizing and this is unusual for this time period or somewhat unusual um for this time period is that he does not think that she is dirty because she was assaulted and he does not think she is unclean and he does not love her less and and there are examples in the 1800s of of men like leaving their wives or divorcing their wives or like you know terrible like uh relationships falling apart because because women are assaulted and, and then they're blamed for it and jonathan very specifically and bram stoker through jonathan is very much kind of emphasizing that this is not the fault of the person who was assaulted um this is not their stain this is not their sin um but it is perceived as such for example by the uh christian church uh which like at, at that time period uh it was um and 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 even would be like you know that there are certain things about like you know abortion and if you get pregnant and blah 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 like um and so anyway so all this is to say to come back to Quincy and Quincy's death I think within that context that the mark on Mina's forehead is not just vampirism it's assault it's it's a mark of the fact that she was sexually touched in her bed by a strange man against her consent um the last thing Quincy says to her is that she's clean the last thing he says is that she's not marked anymore. Like he chooses with his dying breath to tell her that he doesn't think she's dirty. And I think that that is such a like loving and chivalrous and kind thing to do. And so when, and when we were talking about that, I remember like I nearly cried like in the session, um, like because I was discussing that with Giancarlo and we kind of came to this understanding. And I think that then the way that he performs that, like as, as Quincy, that sentence is just like this parting kindness that he can do for Mina, that he can he can free her of this. Um, and he can tell her that she's free and that she can move on with her life and that she doesn't have to be defined by this. Um, I think it's an incredibly powerful narrative. Um, and again, one that I hadn't as completely registered until I directed the piece. And that's what I, love about directing is 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 
entering like new dimensions of a text that no matter how much I've studied it, no matter how many times I've read it, no matter no matter how many times I've read it, no matter how many adaptations I've seen, um, you still learn new things when you're when you're actually like in in the guts of it, pulling wires at places and, and, and kind of moving things around. Um, yeah. On a similar sort of note, I would love to get from you like your thoughts on directing difficult material. Like you also directed Eliza, a robot story, which is uh, another very explicit metaphor for assault and abuse. Um, like how do you approach difficult content, especially when in, in the way that you treat actors and the way that you direct actors? Like what, what are you, what's your approach there? So I have a lot of strong feelings about this um, because I think that actors are working professionals who have rights to a safe working environment in the way that every other working professional does. And I think that too many people fetishize acting actors in the acting profession in a way that becomes incredibly abusive incredibly fast. Every actor I know has experienced some kind of workplace abuse. It's it's obscene. Uh, it's disgusting. It needs to be fixed. Um, so there's a couple of things. Uh, one of them I borrowed from Jeffrey Gardner and Eleanor Hyde uh, over at Heartlife NFP, which is that which they listen developed. Too unwell. Everyone listened to unwell. Everyone okay, listened no. to unwell. It's so good. Um, <laughs> Uh, which they kind of got from their work in theatre, which is to have a reporting system in place. So the first thing is, uh, if someone feels uncomfortable with something that I say or do, in the first instance, I ask them to tell me. If they don't feel comfortable telling me on a group call, they can write to me. If they don't feel comfortable telling me, then they can tell one of my colleagues. Uh, so for example, in this case, like Hannah. And if they don't feel comfortable telling either of us because we work quite closely together, in this case, we were both directing on re uh, regarding Dracula, um, then they can tell a third person who's a bit more disconnected, so like Stephen or Tal. Um, and you know, something that I make very clear up top when recording with my actors is being like, this will not affect your working relationship with me. It will not make you less likely to get work from me in future. Feedback is good. I make the radical assumption that I'm not perfect. I assume that I'm going to make mistakes and shocking, right. Um, and you know, with the assumption that I'm going to make mistakes, I would rather like know how to improve my behavior. Um, as far as I'm concerned, whilst I'm directing a section, I am essentially the line manager of the actors that I'm working with. And what that means in the UK is that I am responsible for their physical and emotional and psychological safety and well-being, which means that if they are doing a running scene where they're having to do a lot of breathing and they're getting a bit dizzy, then I tell them to stop and sit down and have a glass of water. It means if they're under a blanket, then I make sure they get out from under the blanket so they don't overheat. It means, um, but it also means that if we're approaching sensitive or difficult material, um, then I make it very clear uh, like what we're going to be working on if they want to uh, record separately, for example, is, is a big one. Um, so especially, I think with both Dracula and Eliza, it's a lot of stuff about, yeah, like sexual violence and also gendered violence. Um, so it's that if a performer doesn't want to record in a room with any men in it, then they have the right to make that request um, and to record separately or privately if they'd like to. Um, it's saying like, what order do you want to do things in? So like sometimes they'll be like, do you want to do like this more emotionally intense scene first or, and, and then do like the lighter one afterwards or do you want to build up to it? I try a lot to listen to my actors. Um, you know, at the end of the day, even when covering difficult subjects, this is a job, it is their professional skill. And in the same way that like, I don't know, uh, painting a sign that says something is deadly isn't gonna make you feel physically threatened. Most actors, like most of the time are able to like make a pretty strong distinction between what they're performing and who they are as people. And it's important to remember that like, um, but at the same time, like, if you're doing an unpleasant bit of work, it's always worth kind of knowing like how, what order you want to do. But I think a lot of it for me is about, 
yeah, giving my actors agency. Um, it's making sure that they feel able to request breaks if they want to. Um, I port some kind of RPG safety tools that I use like into my directing sessions. Um, so just kind of being like, you know, it, we, we can stop and we can like completely end the session. So basically the equivalent of like a red in an RPG, or we can stop for 15 minutes and then come back in. I, I generally have that like as a rule for a lot of different reasons, like uh, if there are tech issues, people can get really stressed. It means that they're, they're in a really bad headspace to perform because they can't focus on performing because they're stressed about like their computer or the sound or whatever. And so often I'll make like a bunch of dumb jokes and kind of just vamp and spiel for 10 minutes and then make them go get some tea and cake and then come back like when they feel like it's a different space um, in, in terms of remote recording. But yeah, like, so it's a similar thing with like kind of dealing with these heavy subjects. Uh, but generally speaking, I think it's just about like clarity and agency, making people feel empowered to and enabled to say no or to organize the way that they do things if they, if they want to. And also making sure that they know what they're going to be performing on a certain day, who's going to be there, like what is going to be expected of them. I think that there has never in history, and I don't care if any film bro wants to fight me on this, I will fight you on this. I do not <laughs> think ever in history, a director like sending a naked woman into a room where there's a strange man who's going to run at her with a knife to get like the authentic reaction has ever <sighs> actually been a better performance. Um, because at that point you're not looking I think it's hard to claim that there's such a thing as a universal indicator of emotion despite what pop psychology might say but it is true like we were saying earlier about naturalism versus kind of like uh, extravagance and expression of emotion that we all speak a shared language of signs and symbols and aesthetics. Because most people have consumed television, film, advertising, um, we understand what certain things are supposed to mean. And we can contradict those things as creatives. We, we can play with those expectations and subvert them, right? So it's like, we know that music in a major key is supposed to be happy. And so then if you put music in a major key over a sad scene, then you are creating a contradiction there that can inspire emotion. This is also true of performance. There are a lot of performing tools and techniques that we subconsciously or consciously understand to mean certain things. We understand that if I get like really quiet and close, then I'm being like either a little bit sexy or I'm trying to tell you a secret. And we understand that if I'm kind of getting really big and brash, then I'm probably like performing to a crowd and not being super personal. Um, and like in that way, like, professional like actors uh, like people who are trained people who have experience understand how to use like that palette of archetypes and tools and mix them together in really interesting ways on purpose because they are skilled artists so doing the sort of just horribly abusing someone to get an authentic reaction from them in inverted commas thing is sort of like the equivalent of giving Michelangelo a box of paints and then punching him and saying <laughs> that where he dropped the paints is way more effective than the Sistine Chapel. It's like, I would rather let the painter do their thing on purpose than just kind of force something random out there. Because the reality is that lots of individuals rea will react to things like fear in, in very strange and unusual ways that like, we are all the stories of our lives. Uh, we are defined by our traumas and our experiences. Some people have really weird sneezes. Like, uh, like you know, th there is gonna be something about the way that person reacts that actually might seem foreign or confusing to other people. And that if they had been allowed to make a choice about how they performed it, it would have been better and more powerful 
powerful for more people and less alienating and less confusing. Um, so I, yeah, I believe very strongly in giving people the opportunity um, and power to to do their job well because that's why I hired them. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. How do you walk someone through if they are having a difficult time um, with a, with an acting choice? Like, what is what is the process for you? Like helping them to get through that script or changing whatever you need to so that they are comfortable? What does that look like for you? Um, I, I think it depends on the script and the team and the context. Um, so obviously the choice with uh, regarding Dracula, a lot was to stick to the original text. Um, and so in that case, it would be... I guess it would depend on like how strongly someone felt. I didn't have anyone feeling so strongly they wanted a text changed, but if they had wanted the text change, I would have um, contacted the team, like you and uh, Stephen and Tal, um, and asked uh, if we could change it. I did have that with the woman in black, uh, where the N word was used in the original text of the novel, and oh boy, that was like a, a point of like I wasn't that text would not even get sent to Papa. I, w I just went back to the production team and was like, we will change this or I will leave the project and you will find a different director. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, um, uh, so sometimes like it's that level of like, there are some things that I feel for me in terms of my professional integrity, I will not permit to be attached to something that has my name on it. When it's lower down than that, like I've definitely had actors before be like, oh, I feel like this line doesn't reflect like this character. So um, in some of the series I've been working on recently, um, that's been with new original writing. And with new original writing, it's a lot easier to change because you can kind of be like, well, you can contact the writer or if they're not particularly precious about it, you can just change it yourself and be like, look, can we sub in this line because that makes more sense for this character and this person feels more comfortable with it. Um, and then in the case where we can't change the text, or they don't feel comfortable or they, they don't feel strongly enough to change the text. Um, then it's like finding ways to subvert it. Like there is a way that you can say, do you want a cup of tea? And you can mean, I want to kill you. Right. Like it can kind of be like, do you want a cup of tea? Like, um, and you can essentially like say one thing with your words and another thing with your delivery. Um, Acting. well, right. Like, and that's like, the thing that I tend to do a lot with, uh, especially stuff about like race and gender um, in, in terms of Dracula, uh, where like characters are self-aware, like what that when they're saying things like this, they are saying it with often with a sense of irony, a, a sense of reflection, a sense of resignation or humor or sarcasm, um, because then it takes the power out of the actual statement. Like if, if the person saying it has the agency to say something mockingly, like, well, you know, like all women are obviously expected to behave perfectly. It is pretty clear that I don't mean that. Um, and then it is a lot less disempowering and debasing um, than having to say very sincerely, well, yeah, like, I mean, do you not behave? Like, that's really weird. Um, you know, like it's, 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 you want to be, um, so, so finding ways to kind of, uh, I guess, trouble the text um, and, and, and have a conversation with it and sometimes argue with it. Um, and so that's like a big one. Um, and generally speaking, like I find humor is one of the most effective ways to do that. It's really hard to be scared of something that you can laugh at. Um, <laughs> and so it's really hard to feel offended or hurt by something you can laugh at. Like as a queer person, that's like a, a big part of our ammo. Like if you can laugh at the fascists, then they lose a lot of their power. Um, uh, 
uh, when you're scared of them, that's exactly what they want. They want you to feel scared. Um, but uh, they don't know how to react to being made fools of. Um, and so like similar thing with texts. But apart from that, again, it's just communication with the actor and just sort of being like, I am never going to strong arm an actor into doing something that actually makes them feel, you know, debased or or like deeply insulted because that again I feel contradicts my professional obligation to them as my colleague um but sometimes because this is a job and we don't always get to do things that we like in our jobs sometimes we have to like oh I had to work at a call center for a really long time you know you kind of suck it up and find ways to justify it and find ways to make it make sense in your head in the same way that like I would make customer service make sense in my head you know like sometimes it's just being like well okay like this is why this person really does need their noodles to not have chilies or whatever like uh, that's not a good example dietary preferences are allowed but you know like that kind of <laughs> um uh that kind of thing um so yeah like it depends uh but generally speaking most of the time I think my instinct is to go to humor and contradicting in the performance what the text says so that the character saying it and the identity whatever that identity might be has more power than the text itself because the thing that's really fun about directing a performance is that uh the voice, the voice is mightier um, than the letter. Like, and 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 people pay much more attention to the tone in which you say something than the words that you are saying. Which means that you can really uh, change the meaning of a sentence and change the meaning of a paragraph and change the uh, thrust of a text if you need or want to. Let's say this is really really good advice. I think, <laughs> like in general, let's say that I am a brand new baby director, maybe on my first audio drama, and I don't necessarily know what I'm doing, or maybe I don't have that background in theater. What advice would you give to a new director? Gosh, um, I mean, I think the main thing would be like just consume a lot of the kind of drama that you want to direct. So if you want to be directing an audio drama, listen to a lot of audio drama. Um, but, you know, listen consciously. Try to make notes. Think about moments where... Uh, so I think a good rule of thumb is does this character sound like a real person having real opinions or do they sound like they are pretending? Um, because if they sound like they're pretending, they're probably what we would say uh, they sound read, um, which is to say they sound like they're reading something off a page rather than just saying it spontaneously out of their own mind and out of their own emotions. R-E-A-D, read, yeah. not... Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, <laughs> And so I would say to like, yeah, like a, a, a baby director, like anyone who's interested in directing audio drama, um, listen to audio dramas, see if you can spot those moments where the line doesn't feel like it was sort of said spontaneously. Note down like why you think that happened or you don't even have to write it down. Like I, I personally just think a lot like I, I like, uh, or I like will kind of, um, go through things over and over but like think like where was their voice higher pitched um one thing i talk about uh or ask my actors to think about a lot and i think about a lot is oh this is one of my favorite things to talk about actually so like the musicality of audio drama is really important um mm. because audio drama is music essentially um it is a bunch of notes set in a row and if i suddenly start speaking much more quickly or i start going up really high or i get really really low or i slow down and i'm really low those things actually do affect kind of the way that i seem emotionally um and there's this beautiful welsh uh, medieval welsh word called kanghanedd um and it basically means all of the different words that you would apply to literary tools in English. So like assonance, sibilance, um, onomatopoeia, rhyming. 
like all of the words that are about how words sound um all at once uh so kankana is literally translated means the singing of the words um mm. and i think like think about the kankanas in audio drama like often a scene in an audio drama is a piece of music how quickly is it going when does it speed up where does it crescendo where does it diminuendo like why is a voice higher or lower pitched what is making that happen why is there a pause here why is there a sudden like rhythm why is there a staccato bit here why is this bit smooth and this bit rough um look for those kind of textures and movements in the scene um and try and figure out like what kind of music you like like what kind of directing you like what kind of performances you like and how those performances are achieved um so you know it might be that you like those kind of bigger kind of gay future type like really loud performances um and it might be that you like like really small sincere performances and it might be that you like ones in between but you need to figure out like what kind of directing you like um what about directing like resonates with you and really like the the more you listen the better your ear will get like again like for me and certainly for a lot of the other directors I work with directing I would say is about like mm, oh I can't even put a balance on it I was gonna say half and half. maybe it's half and half um it's, it's at least partly preparing the text but it's also a lot just like in the room I can I've listened to enough drama and seen enough drama and thought enough about drama that I can just hear if, if something's wrong and I can normally tell what needs to be fixed about it in the same way that if I play the violin I can tell if a note's off key and I can tell if I need to go higher or lower to fix it so yeah mostly just you know familiarize yourself with your field um but also do consider consuming drama in other mediums you will learn things from them as well like you know watch tv watch films go to plays I do think that theater acting is really really um sympathetic with audio and I think that learning more about theatre will probably teach you more about audio drama as well. Listen to audiobooks. There are some great performances in audiobooks. Um, uh, I was listening to an audiobook of The Road of all books and it completely changed the way that I thought about audiobooks because it was such a great reading. Um, wow. Listen to video game voice acting and think about like voice acting in video games um, and in animation. This is a long uh, round but basically just listen to audio drama it will help you understand audio drama <laughs> <laughs> for for Rook who is doing the transcript for this could you spell the, the Welsh, Welsh the, yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's C for Cook Y N for November G for Golf H for Hotel A for Alpha N for November E for Elephant D for Delta D for Delta Kung Hannes. It's uh Welsh has a different set of characters to English, so uh, double D means th. Right, so that's yes. why um it's it's slightly strange. Uh, but yeah, C C Y N G H A N E D D. I had a bunch of friends in college who took Welsh as a like a one semester elective, Ooh, cool. and they were like, "Let me tell you about the double L." Yeah, yeah. Oh no, we love the double L. That's a. That's uh, <laughs> uh, I do it wrong every time. But it's I mean it's a hard it's not it's not in English. Um, it's not a sound found <laughs> in English. So yeah. Um, okay, Ella, tell me what you are working on right now that you are so excited about. 
I so I actually I'm so glad you asked um, <laughs> uh, because I have just written and directed my own audio drama series. This is actually the first audio drama series that I have created myself. Um, I'm very excited about it. It is a post-apocalyptic urban fantasy inspired by British folklore and Arthurian legends. It is coming out in January 2024. It is called Camlan, uh, C-A-M-L-A-N-N. I'm making it with Tin Can Audio. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm making it with Tin Can Audio. It's a serialized drama. It's about three idiots and a dog um, in a cottage in Wales uh, trying to survive the apocalypse. It means a lot to me. Yeah, I wrote it. I directed it. Um, yeah, please check it I out. I cannot wait to hear. And and if we want to know more about you and your work, where should we go? Um, so you can follow me and Camlan on socials. So I'm on all of the various socials that still exist as um, at G-E-J Watts. Uh, they're just my initials. And then uh, Camlan is at Camlan Pod. I actually, so I don't have a Tumblr, but I do have, well, I don't have a public Tumblr, but uh, I do uh, <laughs> use the Camlan Tumblr. So if you ever want to interact with me, Ella, on Tumblr, go to Camlan Pod and I will like talk to you about audio drama. Ella, thank you so much. I, I learned a lot from you as a director uh, during our time on Regarding Dracula. I feel like this has been like just a really enlightening and rich conversation about the art of directing. You're so cool, Ella. Thank you. I mean, I think you're pretty cool too. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you all listeners for joining us today. This bonus episode featured dialogue editing by Brad Colbrook. It was produced by Tal Manier. This interview was made possible by our supporters on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash redracula to join them. Next up is the trailer for Camlan, a new audio drama written and directed by Ella Watts. Please hold. Your call is very important to us, and we will get to it as quickly as we can. The cataclysm is frightening for everyone. Remember, in times like these, we need to stick together more than ever. If you need emergency assistance, please call 999. Your position in the queue is 333. Hello, you've reached the Cataclysm Casualties Hotline. Can I take your name and date of birth? Peretia Green. Morgan Jones. Hugh Jun Liu. Gwen Turner. Just call me Di. Okay, and who are you calling for today? My mum, Shan Thomas. She was in Aberystwyth. Matthew and Louise Turner. In Kirkwall, on Orkney? My father, Kai Liu. Ben. Ben Jones. I saw something on the news about a sea serpent. He's 15 years old. Anna and Sophie Green in Portsmouth. What's happening in Kowloon? Listen, is this real? I've been seeing news reports about dragons. Well, let me look that up for you. Where are you calling from today? Bristol. 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 Leicester. I'm so sorry. It looks like we haven't got anyone listed under that name on the database. This means they haven't been listed as a fatality. Call back tomorrow, and if you haven't heard anything from us or your loved one in three days, try the online form. I know this is scary, but it's okay. We're going to get through this. Together.
Kamlan, a post-apocalyptic audio drama by Ella Watts, inspired by folklore and Arthurian legends. Coming January 2024. Produced by Tin Can Audio.